Yes, that's my king. And the most important phrase in that video, that wonderful video, is the question that's repeated. Do you know him? Do you know him? You can. That's the best news. You can know him. You can know him today. You can know him every day. And however well you know him today, you can know him better tomorrow. And we are focused today on Jesus Christ, the better king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we continue our sermon series, Better Than Ever, we will focus today on Jesus as the better king than ever, than any king who came before him, than any king who will ever come after him. And it's a fitting subject for Palm Sunday as he makes his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. So far in our series, we have focused on how Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than angels. He offers a better rest. He is a better high priest and was a better sacrifice on our behalf. And I hope that you're picking up on the trend here, that whatever you compare him to, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And Jesus in the new covenant and the grace and the love that he offers to us is better than anything that came before and anything who has come since. It's better and it's practically irresistible. And the reason we're spending so much time on this is to make sure that you understand what sets Christianity apart from other religions in the world, that we have a better high priest, we have a better savior, we have a better sacrifice, we have a better king that we call our king today. And I want to encourage you uh, to dig into this, to continue to study Hebrews, to continue to lean into this. I've gotten some great questions as we've gone through this series, great questions that tell me people are, are thinking beyond just the 1030 hour on Sunday morning, but they're wrestling with these things and they're seeking to apply them to their lives. And some of the questions had to do with things like, well, then why do we have membership commitments or why do we have leadership commitments or, or why uh, do, do we even have the Old Testament in our Bible? And those are good questions. And uh, we've been focused on Christ and his invitation into the family of God, into a saving relationship with him. And as the Jerusalem Council determined in Acts 15, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to come to faith. We continue that today as part of the new covenant of Jesus Christ, that we don't want to make it difficult for those who are far from God to come into the family of God. And so that has been the door that has been cast open wide through the new covenant and through the grace that Christ offers to anyone who will come and receive it. Then beyond that, there are membership commitments that that are taught in the New Testament that we should be a part of a, a local group, a local believer, a fellowship, and we make commitments to that, and leaders are held to a higher account, and so on and so forth. And so we've been moving through that and understanding that. And if you have questions, it's good to ask those questions. I, I appreciate the questions. They help me understand what maybe isn't clear or what isn't working out in your minds. And so I encourage your questions. And in regards to the Old Testament, I hope you've never heard me say that, uh, that the, no, the Old Testament is no longer relevant to our lives. Uh, we're not under that covenant anymore. We're under a new and better covenant. But we read the Old Testament because it teaches us about the mind and heart of God. It gives us wisdom. Uh, the wisdom of the ages are contained in the pages of the Old Testament. It gives us inspiration as we read about stories of people who lived faithfully with God and pursued God wholeheartedly. 
So please uh, don't misunderstand, uh, and maybe those are the furthest thoughts from your mind, but I'd heard enough of those questions that I wanted to make sure uh, that we were clear on that. Um, and so as we begin today, I want to look at a passage from John chapter 12, uh, one of the accounts of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and I want to start there, and then we'll come back into Hebrews as we consider our King Jesus, who is better than ever. If you'll turn to John chapter 12 uh, with me, you can find this on page 1671 of the blue hardcover Bible in the seat in front of you. And uh, what's interesting about this triumphal entry is that typically, and if you read about these in the Old Testament, a king goes off to war and is victorious and comes back and re-enters the city or re-enters the kingdom or re-enters the nation triumphant, and that is a triumphal entry. You'll notice in this case that Jesus enters and has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the front end of his triumph over sin and death on the cross on our behalf. And so that is one thing from the beginning that is different about Jesus' triumphal entry than many of the triumphal entries that we would read about or understand uh, from history. So here's what we read. He was just anointed at Bethany at the beginning of chapter 12. If you pick up in verse 12, We read this, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast, the feast, which is the Passover feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And so, in that last verse, you see the prophecy fulfilled. You see this king coming prior to the triumphal victory, and he comes riding not on a war horse, not on a stallion, not on an armored uh, horse that is coming in, but he comes in in humility, in unassuming humility. And it's the same for many today. They miss Christ. They miss the King of kings and Lord of lords because he comes in humility. He does not come in power so much of the time. He will be returning, and he will be returning in power, and no one will miss his return. But as he enters Jerusalem and as he begins Holy Week for us, he comes in unassuming humility. So don't miss him. Don't miss All that goes with Holy Week, all that goes with Easter, all that goes with the death and resurrection of the one and only begotten Son of God. Don't let the fact that you've celebrated many Easter's diminish this Easter for you. In fact, this is the only time in the Gospels, and this story occurs in all four Gospels, but it's the only time in the Gospels that Jesus permits such a display, such an outpouring, uh, such such a a demonstration around him. We're told of times like in John 6 where they tried to make him king, but he would not permit it, and he, he slipped away. That this was the time. This was the moment. And I believe there are two reasons that this was the moment, and this was the time that Jesus permitted this demonstration or this, this coronation to take place. The first is that it fulfills the prophecy. There was a prophecy that this is how these events would take place. It comes from Zechariah 9.9, and we'll look at it in just a minute. But I think it also forced the Pharisees to act. That as they began to proclaim him the king of Israel, that forced the Pharisees to act in that moment. And it forced Rome to act. And it set in motion a chain 
of events. And the fact that it happened during Passover is deep and rich with symbolism that we must not miss. And so if you have never been a part of a Monday Thursday service or a Good Friday service, I hope you'll take the opportunity to be a part of the services here at Linwood this week. And if you're a senior, we have a Seniors on the Go lunch tomorrow where we'll be going through the Passover Seder meal. And we'll be looking at Jesus in each element of that Passover Seder, which was celebrated for centuries prior to the actual events taking place. But I want to look at Zechariah 9.9 and look at this prophecy that was fulfilled and see a few other things that it points to around this better king that we have and how he's different than any king that came before him and better than any king that came before him. Zechariah 9.9 is on the screen behind me. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's that word gentle that's not typically applied to a king, is it? Kings are typically seen as strong and and powerful. And yet the king that was promised, Christ, our king, comes to us gentle. Other translations will translate that as humble or lowly. The word can mean poor or afflicted. The Bible tells us that Christ was a man of many sorrows, that he had deep sighing, that he wept tears of blood and dripped sweat, drops of blood on our behalf. He was afflicted and he was poor and he was humble and he was lowly and he came on a donkey, not a stallion. And all of these descriptions of our king are far different than the kings that we read about in history, far different than the kings that we would imagine. Even in Zechariah chapter 9, he goes on to talk about how this king will take away the chariots, this king will overcome the, the war horses, and the battle bows will be broken. That Christ comes in humility and in service, lowly and afflicted. And then Hebrews, our passage today, our main passage today in Hebrews chapter 2, if you'll turn there on page 1864, we read about this better king than ever and what makes him truly unique. If you turn to chapter 2, verse 9, we read these words, but we see Jesus on Palm Sunday, we see Jesus in his triumphal entry. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's crowned as King of kings and Lord of lords with glory and honor, and we're told why, because he suffered, because he suffered death. You see, One of the things that makes Jesus, our king, truly unique is that our king died for his subjects instead of asking his subjects to die for him. Our king is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, because he tasted death on our behalf so that we don't have to taste death. We forget this sometimes. We forget sometimes that the eternal life that we're promised, you know, John 3.16, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Sometimes we get the crazy idea that our everlasting life starts after we die. Does that make any sense at all? No, it doesn't. 
Our everlasting life starts here. It starts now. The fact that we will not perish means that we will never taste death. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is drawing everything together for us and making it clear that Christ tasted death on our behalf so that we don't have to. Which king has ever done that for his subjects? Only ours. Only ours. And verse 10 continues, in bringing many sons to glory. How many kings bring their, all their subjects to glory with them? How many kings lavishly share their glory with everyone who, who submits to their lordship and their authority? Only Christ. He brings many sons and daughters to glory. And it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of our salvation perfect. Through suffering. Our king suffered for us, not commanded us to suffer for him. In fact, we're told that, that this king who dies for us, who tasted death on our behalf, who washes our feet, was made perfect through suffering. And I have to imagine that we will be too. I have to imagine that if our king has been made perfect through suffering, we will also be made perfect through suffering. He's referred to here in this passage as the author of our salvation. In chapter 12, he's called the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus not only initiates it, he also perfects it. He perfects our faith. He brings us salvation. And he perfects our salvation. And it happens through suffering, if you are suffering today, if you are suffering physically, if you are suffering relationally, if you are suffering financially, if you are suffering in a relationship, take heart that that very suffering which we naturally resist has the power if we will surrender to God in it and through it and turn it over to him and say, God, thy will be done, that suffering can also make us perfect in Christ. Because Christ suffered so for us, we have the opportunity to identify with him, to learn with him, to grow with him, to become more like him in and through our own suffering. Now, many Jews missed Jesus because they were expecting a conquering king. They were expecting a king to come in in armor on a war horse and to overthrow Roman oppression and to lead a political revolution and inaugurate a new political kingdom. But Jesus doesn't come to do that. Ironically, we humans have always wanted some king to come and fight our battles for us. It's interesting that God was initially to be the king of Israel. That all through the Old Testament until you get to 1 Samuel, God is their king. And there is no king in Israel except God. And what happens in 1 Samuel? The people look around at the nations around them and they say, well, they got kings. Maybe we should have a king. And so they asked God for a king, but it wasn't God's idea. And an irony of ironies, the king that they choose, the king that they select, Saul, who's head and shoulders above the rest, his name, Saul, literally means you asked for it. That's what the word means in Hebrew. And I get such a kick out of that because he turns out to be a madman. And so for the next years until his death, you asked for it, is your king. 
You asked for it is the one who's taking your sons and going off to war. You asked for it is the madman who's throwing spears at his loyal servants. And interestingly enough, that conquering king cowered in the face of Israel's greatest threat. And it was the suffering servant David who came and put his faith in God and stood before the giant Goliath. The suffering servant who never raised a hand to Saul. Who never overthrew Saul and his kingdom, but waited until God did that for him. He sets a perfect example, and it's no wonder that Christ comes to us from the lineage of David, from the tribe of Judah, not from Saul, the, t- the conquering king, the prototypical king of the tribe of Benjamin. Do you see how this is all set up? That David, the man after God's own heart, a humble, suffering servant to his king, became the great king, the king that Jesus came down through the line to us. And now we see Jesus, the King of Kings, as we approach Holy Week. He suffering for us. The author and perfecter of our faith being made perfect through suffering and inviting us to surrender our suffering to Him that it might make us perfect as well. Because if the King willingly suffers for His subjects, who are we to think that we will not suffer? In fact, Christ promised in John 16 shortly after the passage we just read, that in this world you will have truffles, you will suffer, you will have trials and tribulations, you will have challenges. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. I, your king, have overcome the world. And so the real question, in fact, the only question that really matters is, is he your king? Who is on the throne of your life? Who is on the throne of your life? Is it a political leader? Is it a family member? Is it someone from your past? Is it an ideology? Or is it science? Or is it reason? You see, there's a number of things that we can put on the throne of our lives. In fact, I can be on the throne of my life. God gives me that option. He gives us free will. Or I can take my crown off and I can put it on Jesus. Is Jesus on the throne of your life? Is he your king? Do you know him? Such an important question. In fact, just that that little phrase, do you know him? Those four words matter greatly. And the emphasis that we put on them changes. Do you know him? Not your parents, not your grandparents, not your Sunday school teacher. Do you know him? Do you know? Hand me down faith is not saving faith. Personal faith, personal trust, personal reliance in Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with him is the faith that saves. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? Put the emphasis on the word know. Do you really deeply know him? Not just know about him. Not just know facts and figures. Not just know some of the Bible stories. But do you know him? Do you do life with him every single day? Do you know him better than any of your other relationships? If you're married, do you know Jesus better than your spouse? If you're a child, do you know Jesus better than your parents or your brothers and sisters? Do you know him like that? Does he know you like that? Have you opened everything up to him, left nothing unhidden or undisclosed? Do you know him? 
And do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally? Do you know him in a way that others do not because of the personal relationship that you have? Many people know my wife, Heather. Some know her very well. Nobody knows her like I know her. And nobody knows me like she knows me. Because we've been walking through life together for 17 and a half years. Right, babe? 17? Almost 17? Did I get it right? We got this goofy June 1st, 2002, or June 2nd, 2001 thing. It's June 1st, 2002. We're coming up on 17 years. That's right. But we've been going through life together for 17 and a half because we had a long engagement. Right, babe? It was longer than we wanted. Don't miss the point. She knows me in a way that none of you do and none of you ever will because none of you have done life with me every single day for the last 17 and a half years. Do you know him? Do you know him? Because you can. You can. He invites you to not just know him from afar, but to put him on the throne of your life and go through every single day with him in deep, rich, intimate fellowships, beginning the day by inviting him into your day going through the day, consulting him, asking for forgiveness when we get it wrong, asking for wisdom when we don't know what to do, asking for grace when our patience is running thin, asking God, what are the opportunities that you're going to set before me today and how can I make the most of them? Who needs a smile? Who needs a warm word of encouragement? Who needs an arm around the shoulder? Who needs me to call them or text them today? You can go through life like that as a servant of Christ in deep, intimate, moment-by-moment fellowship with him. And what other king in the history of the world has made himself open and available to his subjects the way that Jesus, the better than ever king, makes himself open and available to us? We don't just have to know about him or know him from afar. We can know him personally and richly and intimately. And however well you know him today, you can know him better tomorrow as a result of doing this day with him, as a result of studying his word, as a result of going to prayer with him. And so today's bottom line, and don't miss this, today's bottom line is that the best king ever offers the best life ever, and he offers it forever. The best king ever offers the best life ever, and he offers it forever. All the other kings that you can put on the throne of your life will pale in comparison to Jesus. They will not willingly suffer for you. They will not die for you, but they will eventually die. So the the lordship that they have will eventually come to an end. The protection that they offer or the benefits or the blessings that they offer will eventually come to an end because they will come to an end. But when you put Jesus on the throne of your life, he offers you the best life ever. And he offers it forever. All the other kings, even yourself, that you can put on the throne of your life will eventually and ultimately fail you. But Christ will never fail you. That's my king. That's my king. And I wonder, do you know him? I was thinking... As we were singing, crown him with many crowns, I knew we were going to be singing that song, and and oftentimes I will worship with the songs that we're going to be worshiping with as I prepare for a sermon. And as I sang, crown him with many crowns, I thought, I wonder why he needs many crowns. Most kings only need one. 
And as I thought about that and I reflected on that and I prayed about that, my mind went to another song that I've loved for a long time. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And there's a line in that song that says, All the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. And suddenly it made sense. The many crowns that we crown him with are the crowns of our lives. We take them off. And we cast them at his feet. We crown him with our crown. We say, I am not the Lord of my life. I am not sitting on the throne of my life. I put you on the throne. I give you my crown. I surrender and I submit to your authority. And what if, what if everybody at Linwood crowned him with your crown? What if everyone who names the name of Christ and what if everyone who does not yet know him as king were to crown him with the crown of their life and make him Lord and King of their life. Can you imagine? That's heaven on earth. That's eternity that we have to look forward to, where all have crowned him as King and Lord of their lives. You're invited today, as always, to respond in faith to God's word. And as you do, I want to encourage you, if If coming to an altar and going through the symbolic act of laying your crown at the altar would be meaningful to you, I encourage you to do that. Don't let anything keep you from coming to the altar. If you want to come to the middle altars, we'll take that as an indication that you would like to pray alone. You would like to be alone in that time. If you want to go to the outside altars, we'll take that as an indication that you would like somebody to come and pray with you, put a hand on your shoulder, or even uh, visit with you for a moment and voice a prayer on your behalf. You can also come over to the cross. There are slips of paper in the corner there. You can write a prayer request specifically for someone who does not know Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you put it on that little slip of paper, roll it up, and place it on the cross? Every week I come through here several times and I just stop and I pray over that cross and I pray over the requests that have been made in faith on that cross. And so you have opportunity to respond in faith to God's word by putting somebody's name on that wall that we will pray for their salvation. Pray that they know Christ. However you choose to respond, respond in faith. Make an altar where you're seated. Sing, pray, but don't let the moment pass. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are not just our king, but that you are the greatest king who has ever walked the earth. We thank you, Lord, that you invite us your subjects, your imperfect, disloyal mess of subjects to come to you for forgiveness, to come to you for healing, to come to you to be washed whiter than snow, to receive grace, to receive mercy, to cast our crowns at your feet, to crown you with many crowns. Thank you. Thank you for suffering on our behalf. Thank you for dying and tasting death so that we don't have to. And for the one, Lord, that came in today, not believing in you, not believing that you are their Lord and Savior, not believing that you are the Son of God, I pray, God, that your Spirit will draw them into your presence, that they will humble themselves, that they will confess their sins and find you faithful and just to receive them, to welcome them into the family of God, to forgive them, 
and make them clean. It's in Jesus' name we pray.